Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Great time of worship. And I pray now, Lord, as we turn to your word, that uh, you would break strongholds this morning. You would encourage those whose hands are hanging down, Lord, and sanctify those who need to be sanctified. Just let your word do its work. We ask in your name. Amen. We left off last week on sort of a cliffhanger. A royal official has come to Jesus with a request that Jesus come and heal his young boy who is on the verge of death. Jesus simply tells him to go back home, your son is going to live. And then we are told that the man started on his way back home, and that's where we left off. So now the question facing us is, will this man's belief in the power of Christ be realized and his son's healing. That's where we pick up in verse 51 this morning. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. If you saw the movie with Tom Hanks entitled Castaway, you know who Wilson is. Wilson is a volleyball that floated ashore in a package after the FedEx plane in which Hanks was riding crashed into the sea during a bad storm. Hanks plays Chuck Nolan, who was a fast-paced FedEx executive. But he gets stranded on a remote island in the South Pacific after his plane crashes with little chance of survival. In trying to survive, he starts a fire with a sharp stick, and in the process... He cuts his hand severely. In anger, he takes the volleyball and throws it as hard as he can. When it lands, he sees that his bloody hand has made an imprint that looks like a fiery head. With his fingers, he fashions a face in the blood. Loneliness gets the best of him, and he begins talking to his new friend. You could even say later that he even prays to Wilson as he attempts to make a fire. All through the film, he communicates with this volleyball, asking its help and currying its friendship. The interesting thing is that nowhere in the film does Tom Hanks ever talk to God. He prays to the volleyball, but never to God. Now you have to ask yourself, why does he have more trust in a volleyball than God? But then with that, you have to ask why other people trust in all kinds of other things rather than God. They will talk to their friends. They will call Dr. Phil or take the advice of Oprah. They will read a self-help book, but they will not come to Jesus. Maybe the key word here is self-help. We can have the tendency to trust more in self than God's help. 
In our account this morning, the nobleman's servants meet him, and they report the good news to him about his son recovering. And it turned out to be the exact time that Jesus told him his son was going to be okay. What an amazing coincidence, huh? You know, I've got a hunch that a lot of things that look like coincidences have a lot more to them than what we can see. Someone said, answered prayer is a coincidence where God prefers to remain anonymous. My spiritual father in the faith, Glenn Rayner, used to say, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't pray, they don't happen. Look at verse 53 with me. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Sometimes I, your pastor, watches TV. And on occasion, I must hold the remote. It's like my king's scepter. Sometimes I'm not as interested in what's on as in what else is on. I'm making up for lost time. Because as a kid, we only got like three channels. And as for the remote, well, you're looking at it. For all you young people in here, let me tell you how difficult and barbaric it was back in my day. If you wanted to change the channel, you actually had to get up off the couch, walk all the way across the room, and get this, manually twist a knob to change the channel. It was undignified and uncivilized. It's a wonder any of my generation even made it to tell you about it. So the remote is a great invention. It actually conquers distance. Not to stress the analogy too far, but that is also what Jesus does here. What I mean is, Jesus' first miracle at the wedding revealed his power over time. Jesus made the wine instantly without the needed time factor of fermentation. But in the second recorded miracle here, Jesus showed his power over space. He was not limited simply because he was in Cana and the sick boy was in Capernaum. We are told that as a result of his healing, not only did the father believe, but also his entire household. The nobleman has been called the first blade of grass of the fields in Galilee. What seemed like to be a problem turned out to be just what his family needed. For 29 years, Tom Landry was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. He was also a strong Christian and for many years was on the board of the Dallas Theological Seminary. When asked to explain his philosophy of coaching, Landry said that the job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do so they, that they can achieve what they've always wanted. Isn't that also what Jesus does? He allows us to go through trials that we would really rather not, and he allows us to face things we would really rather avoid in order to achieve what we have wanted in our hearts 
all along. And that is a more intimate relationship with God, whether we even realize that or not. Like that, Jesus coaches us through those dark valleys, those dark times, and he doesn't leave us until we are finished. And he does so so that we come out with greater faith in him. God uses the circumstances of life, hardships and trials, to bring out of us and put into us all that works together to make us the people that our hearts truly desire for us to be. But there's something else we need to look at and consider. Last week, back in verse 50, we were told that man believed what Jesus said concerning the healing of his son, even though at that time there was no way that he could verify it. If the story would have happened today instead of 2,000 years ago, the next verse we would have read may have been, and the man took out his iPhone, texted his wife, and asked, How is the boy? Or, How art thy boyeth, if you use the King James? What I want us to see is our faith or lack thereof somehow plays into how God works in our lives. This is what I was speaking of when I told you I would try to explain the dichotomy between man's free will and the sovereignty of God, which I'm actually going to have to push back until next week. Here's where things can get very difficult not to only understand, but also to explain. We can muster up all the faith that we have, but if what we want is contrary to God's will, God probably won't answer that prayer. Now, why would I say probably? Because sometimes the worst thing God can do is answer our prayer. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Stick with me here. We're going to take a detour out of the Gospel of John for a few minutes and spend the remainder of our time in the Old Testament book of Numbers so I can make a few points concerning this. If you were here back in 2013 for our study in 1 Corinthians, you may remember me using some of this. Here's the background. When God took his people out of Egyptian bondage, eventually the people began to complain. This is Numbers chapter 11 verse 4. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? The mixed multitude mentioned here consisted of some of the Egyptians that had followed the Israelites out of Egypt. It is believed that many of them cared nothing for Israel or for their God. But they had seen enough plagues in Egypt that they no longer wanted to live there. But look what happens. The rest of the verse says, And also the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Here is the first link in the awful chain of complaining. Let one person start complaining to others about what's wrong, and pretty soon others will align themselves with them. It's important to remember that our behavior affects others. If we are complaining and bitter, we run the risk of dragging others down with us. Hebrews 12:15 exhorts us, 
See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That is saying that just one person can spew out bitterness like acid and harm innocent bystanders. It's good to remember that we are our brother's keeper. Verse 5 says, We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. All they could think of was the meat, the melons, the cucumbers, leeks, onions, and garlic of Egypt. Which to me sounds like a recipe for indigestion, but that's neither here nor there. Now, leeks and onions and garlic have a very peculiar property about them. They're the kind of food that you eat in private, but everybody knows about in public. (laughs) If you think about it, it's a good thing they didn't have all that onion and garlic that they imagined they had. Can you imagine three million cases of bad breath? You would have smelled them coming long before you ever saw them. But what I find compelling is there is nothing in the book of Exodus that would indicate that the children of Israel had anything other than a slave's diet. Well, they may have had the occasional piece of fish and clove of garlic. But remember, they were slaves. And we know by reading Exodus that Pharaoh was anything but kind. So the food may have been free, much like the food in prison is free. Except in this case, you had to perform back-breaking slave labor in order to get this free food. I find it intriguing that it only took God one day to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years for God to get Egypt out of Israel. The thing is, just like them, we can escape into the nostalgic illusion that also twists freedom into slavery. As in, freedom is much harder than we thought. And we can twist slavery into freedom as in, slavery is not nearly as bad as we thought. How else could the staggering outcome happen that the leaders of the rebellion against Moses would later come to describe Egypt? Even though it was the land of bondage, they would describe it as a land flowing with milk and honey which was the exact description of the promised land. But dwelling on their past causes them to lose perspective on reality. Sin is very much like that, you know. Sin has the unique ability to shield us from all the bad connotations and instead only has us focus on what we perceive as the big fun we used to have. We may think of the great parties we used to go to and all the good times that we had. But we somehow forget the arguments, the crying, the fist fights, and the shame. And those times when we actually put our face in the toilet and watch those little oxygen bubbles come up. Let me remind us that the good old days weren't always that good. I've heard it said that the good old days are often a product of a bad old memory. 
Listen, when we dwell on nothing but the desire, yielding to sin only becomes a matter of time. This is why we are encouraged in Philippians 4.8 to dwell on good thoughts. Look at verse 6. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people would go about it and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it into the mortar and boil it in a pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. These are the same people who no doubt shouted for joy when God delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. Can you imagine the euphoria that must have swept through Israel as they walked out of Egypt, now a free people after having suffered nearly 400 years, with generations of their ancestors never having known what it was like to be free one day in their lives. And yet now, just three days into the journey, the incessant whining begins. It says their appetite was gone because there was nothing to eat but manna. By the description we have, manna was obviously very nutritious, but possibly rather bland in taste. But God provided a miraculous meal for them every day. All they had to do was walk out in the morning, and breakfast was all ready for them. But they wanted more. Instead, they focused on what they didn't have. Now we know from Exodus that manna literally means, what is it? Duh! What it is is the miraculous daily provision of God Almighty. Look at verse 10. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Moses is saying, Lord, these people are a bunch of knuckleheads. He really doesn't use those exact terms, but you can tell that's what he's thinking. The complainers were not pleased with the direction of the march. And they were continually finding fault with the way in which Moses was leading them. But why are they harassing Moses? I mean, he is in the same boat they are. Just like all the others, Moses' journey is dependent upon the moving of the cloud. But the people are saying, we are moving way too slow, Mo. I chuckled when I wrote that. That's a play on words. Slow-mo, slow motion. Might want to make a note of that. Verse 12. Moses says to the Lord, Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it's too burdensome for me. So you're going to deal thus with me? Please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. By the way, being a nursing mother has to be hard. But being a nursing father, that has to be a real bummer. 
But does anyone see the irony here? Moses is complaining about everybody else complaining. I love verse 15. This has got to be the ultimate letter of resignation. Lord, if you really love me, please kill me. Right here and right now. Aren't you glad, once again, that God doesn't answer all the prayers that we pray? It reminds me of Elijah when he told God, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He's saying, Lord, Israel has forsaken you, your altars have been destroyed, and I'm the last one left standing, and I ain't feeling so hot myself. Verse 16, The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take up the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. But instead of killing him, God sends him help. Just like he did when he sent Jethro to tell Moses that it was not good for him to be the only one judging the people, and had him to appoint other men to judge the smaller disputes. God works the same way today. The Lord is big into the community of the saints. More often than not, we are to help and encourage one another whenever difficulties arise. But listen now to God's reply, verse 18. Say to the people, Consecrate for yourselves or yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, not twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? If they had had a desert daily newspaper, the headlines would have read, Where's the beef? Like that old Wendy's commercial. I mean, after all, the only thing we have to eat is this miraculous manna which comes down miraculously every day. Well, now it's coming out of their nostrils. A couple of times in my life, I have laughed so hard that milk has came out of my nose. But I can't imagine solid food coming out. That has to be disconcerting. Okay, let's go down to verse 31. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He would gather, at least gather ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Where it says two cubits deep, it would be better translated two cubits high. 
which means the quail were flying about three feet off of the ground. Thus the Israelites could easily take a club and kill them. It was like batting practice at baseball spring training. I mean, they were whacking quail left and right. Now, why would I say it was like baseball spring training? It says, he who gathered least gathered ten homers. I'm sorry. You're right, I'm not. <laughs> so they spent all day and half of the next day gathering quail, and they gathered so much, the least of them gathered 10 homers. That's 50 bushels of birds, which is just under 500 gallons or 3,800 pounds of birds. And it says some had way more than that. Let me try to put that into a picture that we can better understand. You know those big buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken? If we were to convert quail to chicken, each person would have the equivalent of 200 buckets of chicken. Now, one of the results of rejecting God and His provision is it destroys the, capa the capacity to discern sufficiency. If God's provision is not enough, then enough will never be enough. That's how lust and our fleshly appetites are, by the way. If we try to fulfill the lust of our flesh, we will never get enough. We will never satisfy the demands of our flesh. It is insatiable. I just need one more time, one more toke, one more visit to that website. But it never works that way, does it? A good example is alcohol and drugs. While well, I used to take one drink or one pill, now it takes two, four, and eight, and so on, because our tolerance of those chemicals increases. In the same way, our lustful tolerances will also behave in an ascending manner. Lust is very much like a fire. The more you feed it, the hotter it gets, and the more it demands. Question. Why do you think God gave them the quail and then sent a plague because of it? That doesn't seem very fair. I think part of it was because of their greed and unbridled desire in gathering way too much quail. This correlates to the man in which they were to take an omer apiece for each person in the tent. Now an omer is not quite two quarts. See, so do you see the disparity here? God says, all you need for sustenance is just two quarts of manna. Now, one homer is over 192 quarts. So what they're saying is, no, Lord, what we really need is not two quarts of manna, but 1,920 quarts of quail. Verse 34. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hadavah because they buried the people who had been greedy. From Kibroth Hadavah, the people set out for Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. They could have called the place Manna No More, or Quell City, or to return to our baseball analogy, Foul Game. But you know what they called it? Kibroth Hadavah. 
that means graves of lust. And that's where lust always ends, with death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That means that if you are employed in sin, you get paid not in dollars, but in little installments of death. People may not believe that, but Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is death. This brings us full circle when I told you that sometimes God answering our selfish prayers is the worst thing he can do for us. Let me close with Psalm 106. It could have been the epitaph placed on all of their tombstones. Speaking of this very event, it says, They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but now listen to this, but sent a wasting disease among them. Let's pray that we never become so hard and calloused that God finally answers our prayer by sending us judgment. Hope we now understand also that complaining and grumbling is no small matter to God. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without complaining and grumbling. The challenging thing about that verse is the word translated all things or everything actually means all things. We aren't left with any conditions or circumstances that would give us the right to grumble. That's something I have to work on and watch every single day because frankly, there have been people and things that have made me want to grumble. In our last church, we had a lady who told me that God had sent her to me to be my own personal thorn in the flesh. I said, sister, you're not just a thorn, you're the whole bush. (laughs) Obviously, God is still working on me, so I covet your prayers also. We'll come back next week and I promise to get into the conflict that seems to exist between God's sovereignty and man's free will. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I know that it is so easy to slip into those ways of thinking we know best when we are praying. But Lord, like your son, not our will, but your will be done is always the best best prayer we can ever pray. And Lord, help us not to be grumblers and complainers. We have no reason, no matter how hard things are, that we would ever grumble and complain against you. For you have been nothing but good to us. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.